most certainly true. In the greatest act of selfless mercy, God sent His own Son into our world to die for your sins, and we can't stop talking about it. We now present this sermon, recently delivered at Grace, to you. second reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 1, God uses common and ordinary things and people in the service of his kingdom that all might know God's power. Now we no longer need to boast in ourselves, but we can boast in the Lord. These words will serve also as the basis for today's sermon. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. of Wisconsin participates in a scholarship. They give a scholarship to the valedictorian of every public and private high school in the state. I know this because I looked it up, unfortunately. The list of colleges that accept that scholarship is a pretty lengthy one because it seems obvious, a valedictorian of any school would be a a great student to have on your campus. Perfect score on the SAT is 1,600, a feat that only less than 0.02% of people who take the test actually accomplish. It averages out to about 300 students a year achieve that perfect score. You can imagine that that's kind of a life-changing moment. Suddenly, the quest for a college becomes just a choice. I don't know what college would turn away a perfect SAT score. I bet you that's a nice little tidbit to have on a job resume. Oh, by the way, I got a 1600 on my SAT. Employers would trip over themselves to have that kind of brain power working for their company. The San Francisco 49ers had the second overall draft pick last April. And with it, they selected the best player that they saw available, a defensive end by the name of Nick Boza. And most people would agree that that was a good pick. Nick became a leader on their defense, and their defense became a leader in the league. 
Nick and his team is in Miami today. They have a little football game to play this evening. And if they win, it will be largely because they selected the strongest and the best who was available. The car dealership was looking to replace their top salesman. He was retiring and they needed to put someone else in that position. They wanted to set another record this year for sales and so they sent out for applications and there were two that came in. Steve was an outgoing personality. He was funny. He, he could interact with people very, very well. He was charming. And the other application was from Bob. Bob was quiet and reserved and humble. He knew a lot about cars, but didn't know a ton about interacting with people. Guess who got the job? Of course they hired Steve. There are characteristics in this world that will help you to get ahead, and there are some that are going to hold you back. There are traits that are good to have and some that are not. There are things that this world applauds and things that it scoffs at. Foolish, lowly, weak. It's not going to get you very far in this world, but foolish, lowly, weak, those are the tools of our God. Corinth was a city that was known for wisdom and championed intelligence. Along with its city down the road, Athens, they were the center of Greek culture. If you were smart or wanted to be smart, that's where you would be. They would debate in the city center. They were places that were well known for philosophy. People who lived in those towns consider themselves to be the wisest and most educated people in the world. And that's where God sent the Apostle Paul to plant a church. It was on Paul's second missionary journey that he came into town. And in Corinth, he broke, Paul broke a bit of a pattern that he had established. Normally his pattern was to stay in a town for a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. He would preach the gospel, he would gather together leaders, prop them up, build them up as a church, and then he would go to the next town and repeat the process. But in Corinth, he broke the pattern. He stayed there for 18 months, a year and a half, Paul stayed there to be their pastor, to proclaim the gospel of free and faithful saving grace, to proclaim grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Paul was there proclaiming a gospel to them. But yet they couldn't quite shake that desire for wisdom. They couldn't quite shake that trait that was just ingrained into everything that it meant to be a Corinthian. It's no wonder that in the very first correspondence after Paul left that church the first time, he talks about wisdom. That's the letter that you know as 1 Corinthians, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul tells us what real wisdom truly is. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of 
of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God could have raised up a philosopher from within the town of Corinth. God could have brought to them someone who was well-known, someone who was eloquent, someone who could debate with anyone and win an argument, but that's not the way God operates, and that's not what he chose to do. Instead, he brought the traveling missionary. The traveling missionary who described himself like this. Paul said, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's the same reason that God answered Paul's prayer about his thorn the way that he did. Three times Paul prayed, Lord, take this thorn, take this ailment away from me. I'll be a better missionary for you. I'll be able to do more work in your kingdom. But God answered in truth, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the message that God wanted to deliver to the Corinthians. It's the message that God wanted to deliver to Paul and through Paul. And it's a message that fits quite well with this group of Wisconsinites as well. Brothers and sisters, he begins, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Foolish, lowly, weak. These are good descriptors of the people that are gathered here. Even though your kindergarten teacher told you that you were special. I think as we look around, we would have to admit that we're hardly the dream team of Christian witnesses. We are hardly the group that would be shoo-ins to be on God's team. I don't know that we are all first-round draft picks. Foolish, lowly, weak. Those are good descriptors of all of us, and here's the proof. You're smart people. You read the sermon theme in the bulletin or heard me um, declare it here from the pulpit, and a little part of you rolled your eyes just a little bit and said one of these humility sermons again. You chuckled just a little bit, but it was an uncomfortable laugh when I joked that your kindergarten teacher was the only one who thinks that you're special because there's someone else who thinks that you're special, and it's you. We all have that sinful nature inside of us that swells with pride and arrogance that thinks that we are something special. Foolish, lowly, weak, yes, for some, but not for me. 
I certainly bring more to the table than that. But let's remember who it is that's judging this competition. It's God. It's God who has made clear his standards in his holy law. It's God who has set the bar, and that bar is at perfection. It's God who demands righteousness and holiness. And by the way, that same God sees all. He sees the secret sins that we bury deep into our hearts. He knows the thoughts in our minds that we wouldn't dare share with anyone. He knows the condition of our hearts. He knows where our priorities really are, even though we say different often. He knows who's the most important one in our lives. He knows how quickly and easily we push him to the side for shallow and momentary pleasures. Foolish, lowly, weak, those are charitable descriptions, all things considered. Disgusting, depraved, damnable is more like it. But the God who sees all and the God who knows all did something. He chose you. Though he knows your heart and he knows your mind, though he sees your secret sins, he knows you to be foolish and lowly and weak. He chose you. He chose you to be with him. He chose your heart to be a temple of his Holy Spirit. He chose to put faith in your heart. He chose you and wants you to be with him in heaven. God chose us. Lowly, weak, foolish, you. Lowly, weak, foolish, me. He chose us to be in his family and to be heirs of his saving grace. God chose us. And that's a great thing in and of itself, but when you consider what the alternative choice was, it makes us marvel even more. God had a choice between you and Jesus. And he chose you. God gave his one and only son up to come to live among mortals like us. To shed his blood in payment for your sins and mine. To be the one who would work reconciliation. That we might be one with God. And Jesus chose you too. Jesus was willing. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have fled out the back gate of the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have come down the cross when they mocked and jeered him, but he didn't. Instead, he embraced his role as Savior of the world. Because that was the only way that he would one day embrace you. He was willing to live a life under the law of God in your place and in mine. He was willing to shed his blood because his blood was the only price that could atone for the sins of the world. He was willing to give up heaven to live on earth. He was willing to give up life so that we could live. He was willing to die sin's death. He chose you because he loves you. He wanted you to know victory.
And so he destroyed and defeated sin. He wanted you to have glory, and so he gave his glory to you. Our God chose us and he loved us. Yet even in the way that Christ saved us, we see God at it again. We see him using common and ordinary and unimpressive means. Jesus wasn't born in the city streets of Rome, but rather in a lowly barn in lowly Bethlehem. He wasn't born to a king and a queen, but instead to lowly poor commoners in backwoods Israel. Jesus and his birth was the greatest thing, the most life-changing and history-changing moment that we'd ever see. And the cattle slept through it. Jesus' birth didn't make the front page of the newspaper, but rather was just proclaimed to some third-shift shepherds. Jesus didn't come with pomp and circumstance as he entered this world to do the most noble and most loving and most important tasks that the world has ever seen. No, it was the womb of a virgin that he chose. His life was the most impressive life that has ever been lived, and when he was 30, nobody knew his name. He was followed by some fishermen and a rogue tax collector. They were schooled by the teacher for three years, and at the end of three years, they still failed the test. He won the greatest victory that this world has ever seen, and he won won it hanging between heaven and earth with his blood running down the cross of wood. He won a victory that would change the world forever, and his reward a grave. You're a fool if you believe that Jesus' life was for you. That's what the world says. You're a fool. It's foolishness to think that a horrific death died 2,000 years ago means anything for you. The world thinks we're fools. But who cares? Because to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. We know it. And we experience that power. He's put faith in our hearts to see the cross for what it is, the display of God's power, the outpouring of his love, the visible reminder and sign and proof of just how much he loved you. And just how far he would go to have you with him forever. God chose you and on the cross on Good Friday we see how serious he was. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to live and so he himself died so that we could be forgiven. He chose you to be a Christ follower not because of your wisdom, your prestige, your strength, He chose you because Christ. He chose you not because of the life that you might live for him, but he chose you because he is a God of love. He chose you not because of what you would bring to the table, but because he wanted you at his table, at the heavenly banquet, 
in glory. God uses common things to build his church. Those are God's tools. That's the way he operates for millennia. God has been putting his precious treasure and jewel of the gospel in clay jars. And then sending those clay jars out to live their lives for him and to proclaim his love. That's the way God's worked and it's been working. Through clay jars like you and like me, God is gathering the elect to his name. Through clay jars like you and like me, the church is growing and God's name is being proclaimed around the globe. God uses common things to strengthen his children. Those are God's tools. That's the way he operates. It's kind of silly to think that a couple of drops of water can make something new, but in holy baptism, that's precisely what happens. Connected to Christ and his powerful gospel, the waters of baptism are a washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You might sound like a fool, If you think a bite of bread and a sip of grape wine can nourish you for an eternity, but that's precisely what God tells us. Communion is the power of God. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. These are God's tools. That's the way he operates. He puts you, just the right person, in just the right place. And then motivates us and strengthens us through his gospel love for lives of service for one another. He makes us to be just the people he wants us to be. He puts ordinary people like us in ordinary places, in ordinary situations, and then makes the extraordinary happen. We can serve the Lord wherever we are and whoever we are. Because foolish, lowly, weak, these are the tools of our God. It's his power that makes the extraordinary happen. It's his power that works blessing and results through our labors. It's in him that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Look at what he's done with foolish Lowly and weak people like you and like me, he changes us. He changes us to be righteous and holy and redeemed. He changes us to be heirs of everlasting life. He changes us to be mighty warriors in kingdom service. It's only God who can do that. And it's only to him that we sing our praises. Here's what the apostle says. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace or to support this ministry, please visit gracedowntown.org today. This grace is for you.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace.